0: This episode was made possible by our generous patrons.
1: Welcome to episode 146 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book, and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, with the help of special guest Mike Arnzen, we discuss William Friedkin's 1973 film, The Exorcist. So our guest this week is Dr.
0: Michael Arnzen. He holds four Bram Stoker Awards and an International Horror Guild Award for his disturbing and often funny fiction, poetry, and literary experiments. He is also a professor of English in the MFA program and writing popular fiction at Seton Hill University.
1: Welcome back to the show, Mike.
2: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me again.
1: It's a pleasure, as always. I'm really excited to jump into this movie. Uh, Luke tells me that this is a, a particularly important film for you.
2: Yes. It's been with me my whole life. I I mean, I saw it in the theater when it came out because my dad took me to see uh, horror movies in the 70s in the golden age of of horror cinema. So I was exposed to this when I was very, very young. Like I should not have been (laughs) in the theater.
0: It seems like that's the best way to do it, right? It seems like so many people have a memory of this, seeing it when they're really young.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Well, and you know, films that are rated R often are trying to keep kids out of But anyway, maybe we can talk more about that kind of thing later. (laughs) Uh, But perhaps, you know, it was restricted at the time. And I mean, I watch this film almost every year because I teach it, Uh, whether I'm Mm. teaching a a film class, a horror movie class, but also in my literary criticism course. uh, The students aren't necessarily reading the novel. I might share an excerpt that has uh, some, you know, the, the dozen a chapter that might not have a lot of the obscenities in it uh, with, with the students, <laughs> but uh, mostly I throw this film at them and ask them to critique it because I, 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 I feel this movie is one that is um, one of the best examples of, of a text that's trying to get you to not think critically about what you're seeing. So Uh. in literary criticism, I'm challenging the students to, uh, you know, be able to separate their emotions and their feelings about a text from their actual analysis and interpretation of it. And I think this film is actually trying to block us from interpreting it. So it becomes a challenge that's really an interesting one to grapple with in the classroom and for audiences in general. I mean, people feel when they watch The Exorcist. They, even if they're mm-hmm. not Catholic or Christian, even if they hate horror or love it, this movie makes you feel things, and it's really successful at that. <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. that has uh, benefits but also disadvantages when it comes to thinking critically about uh, texts. So I think it's a great movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think
1: it's great. Well, uh, you're making me think about how you know, golden age of of horror films in the seventies, this this film it's not sort of like your typical we're trying to scare you film. Like uh you know, there are there's intentions being made by the filmmakers in order to make you feel a certain way. I, I like what you said about how everyone can interpret something different with the film, and yet at the same time there's many layers of interpretation to it. So, and you can see it as more of a surface level film. You could see it as a metaphor for abuse, potentially a metaphor for Christianity and faith and all of that sort of thing. Um, it's just, there's so much to it. And it's 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 really interesting how it hits people differently, um, especially because, you know, it's so visceral in some ways. And I'm always fascinated by all the stories surrounding this sort of curse of this movie. It's It's
0: listed as one of the like, most you know controversial films but then also like a cursed film where like you hear stories about people dying after it was shot or like people could never recover from being on this movie so um i i didn't do a ton of research into it other than stuff i've heard over the years um so i'm hoping that we can get into some of that today i mean
1: i i'll we'll start it off a little bit right here i'm sure arnzen is very familiar with the film i'm sure he's heard all of this before but uh-huh. uh supposedly you know the curse that people dying on the film um there were nine deaths associated with with the film uh wow. one of the sets burned and there was no detection of any electrical fires or anything like that so it's sort of a mystery fire that they can't figure out which to mm. me kind of me, me like maybe it's like some religious zealots or something that want to come in and burn down this <laughs> this movie that's being made or something like that but or was uh, pazuzu pazuzu could potentially be the answer too <laughs> so with the nine deaths um there's actually two actors who died before the film was even released it was jack mcgowrin in Vasiliki Maliaros. <laughs> so both of them died. Yeah, I definitely said that name wrong. But uh, both of both of them died before the film was even released. Uh, oh, and wow. supposedly the actor who played Dennings died very soon after shoot, he finished his scenes. Okay. So, I mean, creepy in and of itself. Uh, I watched the documentary called The Fear of God, Making of the Exorcist. Mm. And uh, in it, a lot of the actors were talking about how, you know, it, it, it's a it's a game of numbers. If you're if you're on a set for a year or so, chances are someone might die. Uh, whether mm-hmm. it's like a heart attack, old age, whatever it is. Um, but on this film, to have nine specific deaths is is definitely not the norm. Mm. What's your take on all the the curse stuff, Mike? <laughs>
2: One never knows. <laughs> um, I, I'm, a, I'm a big skeptic of all the paranormal uh, material related to the film. I mean, mm-hmm. things happen, you know. I mean, what else can we blame the movie for? The Vietnam War? I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> how far do you go with this? So, uh, I, it, you know, just wrong place, wrong time uh, for yeah. some of those people. Uh, but, you know, a lot, a lot of this is related to the kind of merchandising of the film, too. I mean, I think Warner yeah. Brothers was more than happy to kind of help spread these rumors around. And, you know, I think some of the artists involved and the actors and everybody just kind of climbed aboard and kind of helped spread these uh, myths and create this lore about the movie, mm-hmm. including fans, too. Like, we who are fans of this film are Im- implicated in doing the same.
1: <laughs> it's, like, it's it's just like certainly it, not the hosts of this yeah. podcast would never yeah. do such a thing <laughs> <laughs> well like I was going to say Luke and I we tend to agree with you we're skeptics when it comes to this but uh, yeah. and it sounds like you know I, I think even the actors in the documentary said you know maybe we were you know drawing parallels to things that weren't necessarily going on but apparently Friedkin uh some of the actors were freaked out to the point that he had one of the one of the priests uh that was either associated either associated with the filming or sort of like a um an expert witness that they could go to uh came and performed an exorcism or some some sort of ritual on the set in order to kind of like cleanse the the curse or something (laughs) Uh like that which very much speaks like like i don't think friedkin believed in in the curse so I, i don't know i think he was probably doing it for for publicity's sake, potentially.
2: Well, if, you know, I think the the whole myth lore surrounding the film is, is interesting because it shows how much meaning it, this text really has for the audiences as well as, you know, just as a historical kind of uh, event that The Exorcist was. I mean, uh, the, what makes the movie kind of intriguing to me, as much as this whole uh, kind of... Uh, stories about the making of the movie uh, exist. There's also just the, the way that the movie itself treats spirituality seriously. Uh, that's very rare in the cinema. And, you know, when people talk about this curse or how the set might have been haunted or, you know, people died because for whatever reason, but usually it's because the devil was involved, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And,
2: uh, <laughs> all of this speaks to, like, how strongly people believe in this stuff. Uh, and how yeah. how a film like this kind of raises this raises the issue of believability. Like how how much do you believe in a God? How much faith mm-hmm. do you instill in these religious institutions that we're seeing on the screen? And it just raises the issue so that people can talk about this around the kitchen table after the movie. And I wanted to yeah. share this with you guys. When I was growing up in the '70s as a kid. People were talking about horror movies all the time. I true. I, I was awesome. on. I lived in Long Island, New York I don't know if that you know if it was different in Kansas I don't know but you know every week there would be like something I remember when Jaws came out the Exorcist all these big blockbuster horror movies Rosemary's Baby, I even remember talking people were talking about Night of the Living Dead
1: Um Awesome. I mean, I was. How wasn't about The Omen? I, what's the that? Omens and Other Massive one. The
2: Omen changed my life. Let's not go there yeah. <laughs> because uh, that, that movie <laughs> is amazing. Um, it doesn't really stand the test of time. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it changed my life. Um, anyway, I mean, I just wanted to share with you some anecdotes of what I remember growing up in Amityville, New York when The Exorcist came out. Outside, my dad took me to the theater. I told you guys about this. But outside the theater, when we went to the parking lot, there were all these tracts or slips of paper underneath everybody's windshield wipers in the parking lot telling us we were going to go to hell for watching the movie. <laughs> oh my I mean, gosh. there was like
0: cultural viral marketing.
2: <laughs> Maybe yeah. it was viral marketing,
0: or it could have been no, just. I so- mean, it served as it, even if it wasn't intended. <laughs> Yeah, last week we we uh had quite a had a quite a discussion about this sort of thing because I feel like the the story itself invites you to ask, like you said, like do I believe in this? Is this something that is plausible in the real world? Um, it, it it operates in this nebulous area of it's supernatural yet it is firmly planted in something that many many people do believe in. Um, so you can't just dismiss it as like oh this is purely. You know, fictional, science fiction, or or fantasy. Um, it's somewhere in between it, for for a lot of people, and both of us are skeptics. Um, so I, we talked about how if you're someone who does deeply believe in this, this movie and this project is going to hit you in a very different way.
1: Well, almost like a, a, a like a confirmation of sorts, right? Like in the end, the you know the priest finds God and defeats yeah. the demon, and all of these things. So like you can you could read it from that perspective as well, if you you know if you believe in that.
0: Uh we also talked about last week with William Peter Blatty. Um I was a little bit surprised to find out that he did seem to be a believer in this. It, it it felt to me like the person who made this story might just be trolling religious people. Um but no, it seemed like he he did believe in this. Do you do you know a lot about uh William Peter Blatty? Well, I mean
2: uh I haven't read a lot of his works outside of this and uh, and Legion. Which, as you guys mentioned last episode, I think was you know turned into Exorcist Three.
1: Uh, mm-hmm.
2: You know, I think Exorcist Two is a- another victim of the curse. To be honest, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was gonna ask. I was gonna ask that. I- I- I'm assuming just based on source material. Uh, I haven't seen Exorcist Two or Three, but I'm assuming based on source material, Three is probably better than Two. Three
2: is. A movie every horror fan must see sometime in their life it features some of the most disturbing scenes you will ever see in a horror film It has a lot okay. of talking it's kind of it, it's kind of boring in its own way but there's so much talking in it that it just starts to creep up on you because there the, the voices the, a lot of the dialogue is by uh, insane people uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to give it away, okay. but Kinderman comes okay. back, and it's intimated that Karis comes back as well. uh Dyer is a character. There's just all sorts of interesting kind of uh, play with the original story
0: I do have uh one follow up question. Do you have to watch Exorcist Two? to appreciate Exorcist 3, or can you skip it?
2: You can totally skip it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, it would, it would be doing a disservice to Linda Blair, who makes an appearance in Exorcist 2, as the main oh, character. Okay. So that, that film's more about Reagan. And Exorcist 3 is, in my opinion, more about the original priests and uh, Kinderman. Uh, it's really Kinderman's mm-hmm. story. He's the main character as the detective. Uh, that that sounds yeah.
1: prime for a bonus episode, Luke. Exorcist yeah, two, absolutely. and then maybe we revisit revisit uh, Exorcist three and cover Legion at the same time on the actual yeah, main theme. Maybe
0: I, I didn't know it had that sort of uh, reputation around it. I like it.
2: There is a very scary scene in a hospital. I'm not going to spoil it for you. I mean, but you could look on YouTube. <laughs> Your listeners could search YouTube for Exorcist three, and they'll see the scariest scene ever recorded.
1: <laughs> Speaking of scary, I wanted to ask you. Um, you said you saw it when you were younger i'm assuming it it freaked you out and scared you um I, I, for me, it's like I, I, you know, it absolutely terrified me when I was a kid. When I watch it now, I appreciate it more for for sort of the filmmaking techniques and the the messages that are being laid there. But it still is it still is creepy. I was watching it last night, and and it's it's at moments I was creeped out. Is it is it a movie that you said you watch it every year? Is it a movie that as you as you rewatch, there are there are specific things that you would point out that that you've realized over over the course of sort of multiple 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 viewings?
2: Well, definitely,
1: and. Uh- you know, it's.
2: I see something new every time. Of course, mm-hmm. you know what? <laughs> I mean. I wrote an article about this film. I've written a few, but one of them is uh, a look at the way that the film has been re-released itself over time, and that you know, it was. It had a theatrical re-release in like 2000, 2002, where it was mm-hmm. played in theaters again across the country. You know, 30 years later.
1: That- Was that the director's cut version of it, or was it the original theatrical cut? It
2: it was... It was subtitled, The Version You've Never
0: Seen. Yeah. Mm. Because... Which I think is the version I watched. I'm going to go ahead and admit. I I, I watched that version, and then I realized there was also the theatrical version. I think there might be four versions of this movie when I was looking into it. (laughs) So I I don't know what versions you guys have seen. But uh, I think I've seen the director's cut version both times now, because I think... Ten years ago, or plus when I watched it, it was around this time when it came out in theaters i think
2: yeah there's a there's a version that came out around the same time um that had that spider walk sequence, kind of an mm-hmm. extended spider walk sequence that you could watch in the uh you know the uh about the film special features kind of thing uh, but that was reintegrated into the film for the version you 've never seen uh and now it 's kind of a staple of the movie Um uh, it makes mm-hmm. no logical sense. I don't know if you want to jump right into the narrative here or not. That's a scene that makes no sense logically in the movie. Um, mm mm-hmm. Maybe we could talk about that.
1: <laughs> well, it's you know purely going in for the for the scare there, right? Like, uh, it, there's a reason it was cut out from the theatrical, and and I actually wanted to talk about this as well as we William Peter Blatty and and Friedkin disagreed on a lot of things. You know, they worked very closely with the script and with this going making a screenplay and then moving forward and making it into a, a you know shot film. Uh, a lot of things got cut, and I, in the documentary, it was very cool. At the end, Friedkin and Blatty were were sort of like still having disagreements and this was like a 25th year anniversary so to see them still having disagreements and kind of still like uh i don't know it's funny because bladdy brought up uh, he's he wishes he had done it differently so that the film would have he, he had like set up events differently so that the film would have but the, the i think the two major things from from the the theatrical to the uh director's cut are the spider walk scene and then there's a i think there's an extended scene at the end with the two priests uh talking amongst one another that was in the book that was cut, um, and I think that that sort of goes along with what Blatty was looking for, more, more happy ending, sort of giving closure to everyone, and I think Friedkin wanted it to be a lot more open-ended and interpreted, and uh, so that's, I, I think that touches on those two differences for the most part. All right, so I think it's about time we should move into the filmmaker here. William Friedkin is an American film and television director, producer, and screenwriter, closely identified with the new Hollywood movement of the 1970s. Beginning his career in documentaries in the early 60s, he is perhaps best known for directing the action thriller film The French Connection in 1971 and the supernatural horror film The Exorcist in 1973. The former of which won five Academy Awards including Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Director. The latter also earned him a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Director. His other films include The Boys in the Band, 1970, the suspense thriller Sorcerer, 1977, the controversial crime film Cruising, 1980, the action thriller To Live and Die in LA, 1985, the psychological horror film Bug in 2006, and the dark comedy Killer Joe in 2011. So The French Connection was released to wide critical acclaim in 1971, shot in a gritty style more suited for documentaries rather than Hollywood features. The film won five Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. Friedkin followed up with 1973's The Exorcist, based on William Peter Blatty's best-selling novel, which revolutionized the horror genre, and is considered by some critics to be one of the greatest horror movies of all time. The Exorcist was nominated for ten Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Director. It won for Best Screenplay and Best Sound. So, William Friedkin, um, I'm going to start out by saying that in my research, I, did, I actually didn't know this, um, but he's a pretty volatile director, um, by all oh. accounts. Um, he has a singular vision, according to the actors in the documentary that I watched, he's a singular vision, which he will pursue to, to whatever ends he needs to, uh, he's somewhat a tyrant on set. Um, and. Puts sometimes actors in situations they don't want to be. Uh, there is many special effects means that were used that ended up hurting people on the set of The Exorcist. Um, wow. People, a lot of fear, um, and you know, I, 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 you know, I don't think there's any, any, um, you know, forgiving that. But it seems like. The, what he wanted to do, he was able to do, but I, I think nowadays we know that, like, you don't have to push an actor in, in those ways to get the performance. Uh, like, guns were being fired off to scare people in order to get genuine reactions and things like that. Wow. Um, th- uh, the flailing around of Regan's character, a lot of that was, like, sort of stunt-rigged-up machinery that was, like, used to, like, fling her around the room and things like that. So people were getting hurt. It was a it was a you know, very intense set from, by all accounts.
2: Well, I mean, I would say... He is an amazing director, and actually, I, I think he deserves more kind of acclaim. I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. he, he's kind of part of the pack with like Scorsese and Coppola and even Spielberg. Mm-hmm. He was producing blockbuster films at that time that they right. were coming up. Uh, but I think sometimes he's written off because of his, uh, his use of genre. That is, that mm-hmm. like horror and crime films. Kind of like, you know, not taken as seriously as maybe a war movie like Apocalypse Now, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, the French connection was groundbreaking because, it, you know, it had, like, chase scenes that changed the whole way that people make chase scenes <laughs> in movies now. Right. Because You know, you take over the city of New York to make these things happen in external shots, with like, in the real city, and it became very gritty, and sets mm-hmm. weren't used, and things like that, so... To move from that and win a, win the first like Oscar for an r-rated movie doing so to the Exorcist, which is supernatural, the antithesis of realism is really an interesting kind of artistic move for him to make as a director and that's I think one of the secrets to the success of this film is that he's a diehard realist trying to you know shoot a movie that's totally unbelievable and you have you know blady too who might is dealing with beliefs uh, using horror fiction. Uh, You know, like before this movie, it was mostly just like silly ghost stories and things like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And psychological horror is where the realism was. Uh, So then in this movie, you know, we get Father Karras, who's a psychologist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting the way this movie kind of plays off. Realism and and supernaturalism, and it's happening throughout in many different ways just little subtle things to you know, from children's games to uh, film like you know, uh, Chris McNeil is an actress and movie maker, and that's Mm. put in contrast with the the police and the the realism that the skepticism that Father Karras has, uh, kind of makes him a a cynical realist, (laughs) uh, in his own. (laughs) Job as a priest. Uh, it's really mm-hmm. just fascinating the way that realism versus unreality are constantly put in these oppos- opposite opposite um, Realms and structured the, yeah. the movie structures oh. opposites really in an interesting way
0: along the same lines. I was noticing uh, science and like the, me- the medical scenes in particular were shot in a way to where they were horrifying but they were also just like cold and impersonal and um, unhelpful. It, they looked like t- they were just torturing uh, Regan, Regan. Oh, which, which, by the way, like the movie can't even decide how to pronounce this name. Different characters call her Regan at times in the film. Mm-hmm. I'm, I swear I heard Regan a few times. I did hear the mother say Regan at the start, so I will stand corrected. But I, def- I defend the fact that I think there are several characters who call her Regan. Anyway, mm-hmm. beside my point... Um, in the hospital, yeah, it's like it's like science isn't helping. Look at how horrible horrible it is, and then you juxtapose that with a lot of the sort of welcoming and warm, uh, you know, uh, vestiges of Christianity and these priests who are more kind and gentle. Um, and and you know, ultimately, science is not the savior here; it's faith. So mm-hmm. once again, you're putting, like you said, realism versus the supernatural in a way. Um, to where it felt like to me, the message was, uh, you know, maybe don't turn to science, maybe turn to faith, uh, which I don't know if I agree with that message. So like I have, I have like weird feelings about this movie because in some ways I disagree with a lot of the messaging and, But I can still recognize, like, the the master class of filmmaking that it is, and the storytelling is very well done. Mm -hmm. But just, like, on a personal level,
1: I find that I have disagreements with its, like, thesis. I think think that's what Friedkin sort of wanted out of the film as well. Because, like, there's a reason why Blatty wasn't, like, he disagreed with him so often. Because Blatty was going for... He, from a religious background. He was, he was coming mm. from a more religious background. And then you have Friedkin come in with his, we were talking about the French Connection, like very grounded, gritty style, like sort of, and, and then you go and he goes and tackles something supernatural like this. And he, I think he allows you to ask both questions and, and si- kind of answer them depending on where you want to go with it. Um, but I, you were talking about the medical stuff as well, and I just want to say 70s medicine terrifies me. Uh, every, every scene, <laughs> I know they're made to be horrifying, but uh, I was also hearing that the, the spinal tap was was one of the scenes that was making people pass out and queasy like apparently Friedkin himself said that that was it, Maybe even more so than the demons and everything It was the spinal tap with the blood spurting and and yeah. a lot of those scenes like that And there's the trauma of people having been to hospitals and things like that and but those those loud bangings and everything and The, the way that it's sort of a motif that carries over from from the first of all when we start talking about Pullot, we're gonna have to talk about that first sort of section, the 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 uh, preamble to, to the story in Georgetown, um, because that in itself is sort of a masterclass of storytelling. You, you, there's not a lot of speaking going on. We're getting uh, the setup of like the the eyes are very important with the the, the man who has like the one cloudy eye. Uh, mm-hmm. That the, they're all hammering away, and the way that like the hammering. Is and the, these loud noises tend to be like sort of Pazuzu related things, and and then how that carries over to the medical side when she's in these machines and they're so loud and and moving, and, right? Yeah. Uh, so a lot of that is is amazing to me as well.
2: Well, you know that that opening section in our, Iraq is very. The, uh, the archaeology and all that is really interesting because it seems to be kind of grounding the origin for the emergence mm-hmm. of the supernatural, right? And then at the end of it, we see that classic shot of, uh, you know, Father Marin versus the giant dog statue with the phallic <laughs> protrusions. And, oh, and the, the dog's, serpentine penis. Dogs fighting in the background <laughs> and dogs stuff. Dogs fighting, and, yeah. you know, which was that's that pure <laughs> chaos. That was ripped off, I think, by John Carpenter for uh, Males of Madness. Uh, there's like mm-hmm. all sorts of things that are in this movie that are ripped off by other horror directors. Oh, but totally that's a side yeah. note. I want <laughs> I wanted to respond to your issue about the medical scene. Because when I show that to students today, you know, 18 to 24-year-old people, they freak out at that moment. It does. It still has the power um, to scare people. more. You know, people laugh. Nowadays, at like the puking of pee, uh, pea soup. Like that whole mm-hmm. moment is a classic from the film that uh, it surprises you when it happens and it does disturb you in a way. But, you know, the, medic, the kind of gritty medical realism, that scene really is horrifying. And it needs to be there. It really does. Uh, you know, this, this film also, I remember reading about how it's the first appearance of Ritalin in the movies uh, hmm. You know, which is the, the drug prescribed for hyperactivity and things like that um, So that's kind of an interesting note of trivia <laughs> uh,
0: Yeah, wow. well, and it's also I think presented as as like science trying to find like like butt in on something that really doesn't have any domain over Right. And, and I thought it was also interesting how repeatedly, um, uh, a therapist is brought up like, Oh, we need, she should use a therapist. And they keep going, no, 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 <laughs> no therapist. Before we do a therapist, we should do a spinal tap. <laughs> like, you know, don't bring in anyone to talk
1: to her. That's a waste of time. Let's get in there and, and do some invasive procedures first. <laughs> I was really interested in the the way that sort of psychiatrists were, were portrayed at the time because, you know they're like oh you we, don't we want to take her to a shrink and when they do it's immediate hypnosis um mm-hmm. and it's sort of yeah, like right. hokey it's it's and it's not like it's not grounded it's it's this sort of like um stereotype of what you would think of like some very extreme the- psychiatrist of some kind mm-hmm. and uh i just thought that was like an interesting statement and like place to come into and i don't know if that's where medicine was at the time or if it was like uh a decision you know
2: well, obviously, medicine was more primitive uh, forty years ago, but I, I hate to use that word primitive because I grew up in that time so you know, <laughs> uh, It's not like we had medicine men, <laughs> but that's what that's what priests are in a way. They're the spiritual medicine men of today, mm-hmm. right? So, so mm-hmm. the film, and this is grounded in the book, of course, it sets out to procedurally, uh, eliminate every potential explanation for what's happening to the child other than possession. And having mm-hmm. Father Karis be a priest who is also a psychologist at Georgetown University allows us to read the whole test to see whether the child is truly possessed by the church through a psychological lens. So it's like a, psych- it's like a psychological test. It's not therapy per se, but it's still psychology is kind of the last thing to go here before yeah. the movie just says, okay, everybody, this is all a cult. This is a, the only way mm-hmm. we can understand Reagan's behavior is through satanic possession. And from that point <laughs> forward, proven through technology, you know, like the back speech, the backwards talk, uh, mm-hmm. and, and all that uh, It's proven. And you know, a lot of people point to the special effects of this movie as being what makes it realistic uh, and horrifying, but... You know, I mean, yes, all the vapors in the air because they shot this in like a meat locker or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: they brought they brought like a refrigeration company to like hook up a bunch of refrigeration. It was like a kind of a set, and they just literally hooked it up to refrigeration. And they could only shoot in it for about an hour before the lights would get too hot and they wouldn't be able to see the breath anymore.
0: Oh wow, I didn't know that. Interesting.
2: Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's an example of freaking torturing his actors and stuff, right? <laughs> I yeah.
1: mean, they're, they're, to talk about the temperature, they were getting, they were, he was looking for below zero, but at times it was, uh, around negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. What? Wow. Yeah. I didn't know it was that cold.
2: Well, you know, all those visual special effects, I mean, they're real, they're not CGI, so that adds a layer to it that we can kind of appreciate
0: nowadays, and
2: I personally yeah. long mm-hmm. for that to return. But, uh, you know, the movie's coming at you from every angle, so it's not just the visuals. I mean, Reagan's cursing and the backward speak and, 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 and all the voiceovers of Pazuzu that are kind of like, you know, when she's like that. I forgot her, the actress's, mm-hmm. the voice actress's name, Mercedes.
0: Uh. Uh, yeah, uh, McCainbridge, I have it written down here. She is yeah, amazing. I have a note about that. <laughs> that is- yeah. She, uh, she, apparently, she broke her sobriety, gargled raw eggs, and chain-smoked... Uh, mm-hmm. To get the bronchial voice wheeze, gurgle and wail, and she was even restrained during some of the ses- her recording sessions, because according to her, this kind of performance is only possible when you have no freedom, <laughs> uh, which, you know, shout out to her, because those, those voice per- uh, performances are pretty pretty iconic for sure.
1: So, she she originally didn't want to be credited on the film because she wanted people to think it was really Reagan's voice. Um, mm. And then eventually, like, came back around. It was like, it's so successful. It's so massive. And then she realized, like, the popularity that she could have been, you know, taking advantage of and getting more roles. So, she eventually sued Warner Brothers, actually, for a credit in the film um, wow. because, you know, the original contract wasn't set up that way. But
0: Interesting. Oh, I wanted to touch on the Iraq stuff. I felt like it added a, a sense of, like, It widened the scale, it made it grander, it made it feel like we were watching an epic struggle um, between these, like, immortal forces, Mm -hmm. rather than a smaller story about a family, Um, which it ultimately ends up being somewhat, but um, it's always
1: sort of framed by
0: this, like, epic narrative, I think. Well, it
1: feels so much more dangerous, because it is, like, global, ancient, all of these things that Mm -hmm. are set up in in that early... uh, and do, do you, you think there?
0: that Jurassic Park was referencing this scene with the start where? Because I kept thinking of them going and finding the amber. And then that kind of linking, like dinosaurs to ancient demons, and I was like, was Spielberg like referencing this movie? I don't know.
1: Maybe. Well, it's funny, you know. Arnzen brought up the the sort of I always call them the bearded club. They're they're like you know De Palma, your Scorsese's, all those guys in the '70s mm-hmm. who were like the new Hollywood uh, guys, and they were they were all friends. Like t- I, I think for the most part, a lot of them were friends. A lot of them went to school together, uh, studied in the same way, and they're all like the, the like I've t- spoken on the podcast before. They're all. These students of filmmakers like they're they're the first generation of like filmmakers who were who loved movies so much, they studied them, they understood them and knew how to break all the rules and create new interesting ways of telling stories as Friedkin did with sort of his documentary style that he brought into um, the French Connection, things like that. And even what, you know, would influence this film as well, just the way that it's shot. And sometimes sometimes we're up close and gritty with with some of the exorcism stuff that's going on and and, uh, you know, it's effective. Uh, another thing I wanted to mention with Iraq while we're there, and then we'll move we'll move through this plot a little bit. Uh, Friedkin talked about, a lot about how he wanted visually to tell the story of you know good versus evil and sort of like blazing s- sun scenes where it's like the the brightest day and you know we get multiple shots of the of the sun in the sky in Iraq and and also I think the first shot of the movie is in black and white. The sun mm-hmm. is shown and it's or at least it seems black and white. It seems like it was sort of and it transitions to color, right? Right. It was trying to, you know, just juxtapose that with the scenes in the attic and things like that, where it's very, very dark scenes at the end where the priests are battling against this demon um, and sort of the struggle of light and good. And I think that's like a motif that that if you you look throughout, he's looking for good versus evil sort of thing. Um, But I think that's sort of a surface way to look at it too. I think it's also like, is he saying something about like, one like either religion or science is good is you know are these two at odds Are the the priests and demons everything's at odds in this film it feels like um and he wanted to show that through the cinematography which i appreciate
2: yeah and i would i would add that i think in that opening uh, prologue if you will uh it's it one of the reasons it feels so epic in scope is because it's shot more artistic like a like a painting Mm-hmm. Uh, you know all the hammers chipping away. Often there, you see these people hammering. I don't think this is realistic at all. Uh, but yeah. when you look at the long shots that Freakin's using, it almost looks like these these are little demons that are picking away at Car- uh, I'm sorry, oh, yeah, at I... body. So it's it's very much like a, a hell painting. Uh, it reminds mm. you of Bruegel or somebody like that, where it's just a depiction of what hell might look like. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, Father Marin is walking through this kind of, you know, he's being attacked at every angle, right? Remember one, one moment, uh, the woman in the carriage kind of almost runs him over. And it's that's like an almost an omen moment, right.
1: isn't it? He has guns pointed at him. Pazuzu's influence is seen very early on in this story. Like you can, you can, you know, you can look to things and maybe it's just a coincidence things are going on, but very clearly like everybody who looks at him potentially could be Pazuzu, you know, inhabiting them or we can, we can start to look for people who are around Reagan or around Chris and and start to try to see like, is there, is there someone, some other influence that we can feel? Which kind of brings me to the tone of the story and the way uh, I, I think some of the cuts that are in there. It, it the film was edited in a way to make you feel uncomfortable. It was mm-hmm. it was intended to, you know, have you feel the the pressure of a demon who's going to eventually show up, obviously. But on top of that, it's also like jarring cuts and and like cutting cutting from a, a like a quiet scene to a loud scene and 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 things like that that really just put you. You might be like finally relaxing and then you sort of get that jolt and you're right back into it And you're you know the fear level stays pretty pretty high the whole time
0: I felt like it had a lot of like audio jump like jump scares almost yet They work better than many of them that you see in other movies today um, Or throughout time Um, Because it, it felt like very particular purposes like they were linking this like harsh sound to the demon like you said or or to different scenes um, and unfortunately I feel like a lot of people saw this and said i'm gonna put a loud sound in my movie to freak out the audience and make Them jump without tying it necessarily like thematically uh, And through the language of the film to particular uh, Subjects within the movie
2: Well, yeah, you know the sound in this film it did deserve that
0: academy award
2: uh, For this yeah. very reason I and it, well, as well as the editing is, is great and probably deserving award too but uh the sound really is what makes this film so creepy. I think the exorcist succeeds the way that all the best horror movies do because it attempts to turn a movie theater space, the theatrical space of, a, you know, an actual movie theater, cinemaplex, into a kind of haunted space, right? It really takes advantage of the darkness and the sound, surround sound and it, you know, kind of just tortures the audience. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And we would be remiss to not mention Tubular Bells, one of the best horror tracks of all time, (laughs) in my opinion, that uh, when it came on early in the movie, it just delights me. Love that. Love that track.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wish there was more of that in the movie, actually, because, you know, people Mm. know the movie because of that song, but it only appears (laughs) like once or twice. Uh, But there is this great lyrical moment where the wind is blowing through nuns' habits and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's really a great little moment.
0: Yeah, and I think you see kids uh, wearing Halloween costumes, which immediately ties it forever to be a Halloween song,
1: if it wasn't already going to be. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to move into sort of the Georgetown stuff now, if we can. Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to start out by saying the transition for Regan, I think is very, it's very effective because when we see Regan, she is so innocent and she's so believable as this child who's just like, you know, she's so privileged to be in the situation she is with her mom, who is clearly rich and famous. And, and like, they're gonna, she's asking for horses and she's so excited to go, you know, she's going to take her to Europe and all of these things. Um, And like, just to see the juxtaposition, we talked last week about how, um, you know, even with all her wealth and status and everything like that, she, she was put up against something that None of that mattered anymore. And to see sort of her desperation lead her all the way to faith, which she was an atheist. And I don't know if it's expressly stated in the movie, but it definitely was in the book. She clearly was a No, she says she's an atheist in the, in in the, the movie. Yeah okay that's mm-hmm. cool so uh but yeah there's the transition from innocent regan who uh, t- totally buys like this you know young girl who who you know has totally different priorities than pazuzu the demon who have, mm-hmm. as soon as there's any sort of possession uh it's so effective and and you know to, just to talk about the practical effects again the 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 makeup is amazing the the the, the marks that she creates on her face with the cross later um it, it just—I mean—it's terrifying for a reason, and it's stuck with people for a long time. And and then the eye, mo- the the eyes—I I feel like eyes are a very effective way to to start to tell stories, obviously. Mm-hmm. And just having um, the way that people like there's even the, there's even the um, homeless man who who is like asking for change, and the way that mm-hmm. his eyes are so blue and piercing, and he looks at at Father Carris, and um, and just like it just it just continues to be a thing. And then we get the most horrifying eyes that I've ever seen in these like yellow. Uh, like like veined eyes and everything
2: yeah can you help it old altar boy <laughs> <laughs> that kind of that moment right
1: <laughs> exactly i love that <laughs> right <laughs> oh man well and, and it shows it shows caris's character as well just like he, he can't he's like he, he's kind of disgusted right and he just leaves he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't do the priestly thing
0: yeah i was kind of surprised that he didn't give the guy any money but yeah i think there's something else going on in that scene
2: right well he's so tortured by the guilt about it leaving his mother to pursue his life at georgetown and then ultimately abandoning her it's like he has this in- abandonment anxiety that he's playing yeah. out through the whole film and uh you know that's why reagan becomes his mother at the end right mm-hmm. uh, so it's, it's like th- yeah. that's the plot progression for for his character and uh, it's really, really interesting the way that he is kind of this, not only, a, he's, a, he's becoming skeptical about the, the religion uh, or about the, the church and the power it might have, partially because he's a psychologist, but also partially because his mother is dying. He's losing his mother. So, there's a lot of Freudian stuff going on with his character uh, mm. that, that could explain the psychology, his psychology, in the movie. But Reagan is so center stage, Pazuzu is so center stage, we, we don't really pay as much attention to that, I don't think. But he is an equally main character who, he, he's possessed by guilt. And Reagan mm-hmm. is possessed by the devil. And these are parallel characters. This film is a parallel narrative but everybody thinks it's just about Pazuzu in the child's body. That's not the case. This is a parallel narrative, and it is masterfully done.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to talk about when he loses his mother, and he's you know clearly going through uh, going through a lot. There is the moment where he the phone rings, and he has that extreme reaction to it. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? The first time the phone rings uh, and he's by himself, that was a shotgun blast moment. Um, Friedkin off off screen or someone did, off screen had been told to like fire a shotgun, and apparently, wow, the actor was <laughs> literally not literally ha- a shotgun blast. <laughs> literally a shotgun blast. the 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 actor was not happy about that. Uh, said that you know he's an actor, he doesn't need outside stimulation and all this this sort of stuff. Um, you know, and, and like those are stories that go to the legend of the of the film and and i will say with everything everything everybody said in the, in the documentary that i watched about how friedkin was quite a tyrant they all also respected him for his artistic you know his artistic vision and, and saw mm-hmm. him for the genius that he was um, but it's just it's so funny to me to think of like a situation where you're just like firing guns on a closed set because yeah. you're so powerful This reminds me of some of the stories we hear about kubrick and some of the ones you know we we've, we've tackled with him so
0: I, it seems to be of a time <laughs> with certain kinds of directors
1: yeah and you know like say what you will It it was effective. I, you know, I wouldn't do it, but he did. And uh, it's, you know, (laughs) lent to the legacy. You mentioned Stanley Kubrick. I did find an interesting little tidbit. I don't know how valid it is, but Stanley Kubrick apparently wanted to direct this film, but only if he could produce it himself. As the studio was worried that he would go over budget and overschedule, it eventually settled on Mark Rydell. But Peter, William Peter Blatty insisted on William Friedkin instead. After a standoff with the studio, which initially refused to budge over Rydell, Blatty eventually got his way little Kubrick connection.
2: You know, I always think of uh, the character Burt Dennings in the movie, like there's a lot of what you would say a meta cinema going on here with, you know, a movie director is actually in the movie. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. what is that character doing and how does it reflect on William Friedkin? Is it supposed to embody some of his kind of characteristics or is he kind of making fun of what film directors are, what is what right. is he doing
1: with that? I love to see that. you know, like anytime that they can get really meta with it, especially in a film, you know, we're in a very meta time and we have been for a while now, but in the seventies it wasn't as popular. And to, so to, to get those moments, I love to see writers get to write about writers or filmmakers get to, to film something about filmmakers. Um, because it is, you know, it, it, it and it usually is like some over the top version of, of what goes on on set and how people are, um, yeah, I think I think it's clear that Dennings is like an artist who also, you know, seems like he has the power to do whatever he wants. And uh maybe he was making some commentary about that, but I'm not sure. Yeah. And then he's murdered by the devil. So right. <laughs> Yeah.
0: <laughs> well I don't know I, what that I means. <laughs> I mean, just
2: like medicine is is kind of pushed aside as not being able to explain the inexplicable haunting and possession. Mm-hmm. So too are like the fantasies of Hollywood are kind of tossed aside and shown you know we get to see backstage what movie making really is in a movie right so like they Mm -hmm, show mm -hmm. that whole georgetown scene where it's how we're introduced to chris mcneil through uh father karis who's watching her act in this weird student rebellion movie that's being shot remember that and there's yeah, this- I was
0: confused by that scene. I thought it was like a real protest for a bit, but then I'm like, wait, I think this is supposed to be a movie.
1: It is, yeah. Uh, I I, yeah. I was really confused as to like what point are we making here? Like, are like because. Uh, it was, you know, the protesters were blocking schools and there was something being said about how, like, you know, you have to let the students into schools so that we can, you know, end end this conflict. But at the same time, like people protest for a reason, like things are going on, things that, you know, th- like, like things need to be shaken up sometimes and people need, you yeah. know, need to be made aware of things.
0: Impossible so. not to think about that when we're living in a time in which we're seeing protests all over right. the country. So right. I was definitely colored by my, the moment we're in. For sure, when I saw it.
2: Well, and in a lot of ways, we're exactly where we were 40 years ago because you know there was a lot. The whole student youth movement of the late '60s was still fresh on on everybody's mind in 1973, especially those who mm-hmm. had to be old enough to go to the theater. My dad, not me, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> to actually see it. Right. So you know, somebody over the age of 18 will would have lived through the whole student. Uh, you know, movement of the 60s where protest was a part of everyday life, uh, the civil rights movement mm. and all that. So uh, mm-hmm. I think the film was like representing that, but through a kind of echo, a cinematic historical mm-hmm. echo. And what's really interesting to me is that, you know, we see Father Karras walk away from what he's watching while Chris McNeil is, is screaming dialogue And she says, point blank, you have to work within the system if you want to change anything. Like she's shouting this (laughs) through a megaphone at the student rebels, right? Mm -hmm. um, But really, that's a shout at Karis, who's rejecting the the system of Christianity at that point in his life. He's kind of thinking Mm -hmm. about walking away from the system. And so the whole movie becomes, if we're following his plot arc, his narrative arc, not Reagan's or Chris's, is that he has to come to accept the system that he, and and to work within it successfully and that's what happens where at the end of the movie he ta- he's, you know he's like take me you know the whole classic yeah. climax of this mm-hmm. movie is where he's kind of given off, given himself over to the martyrdom of being a priest so he has worked within the yeah. system successfully that's the plot arc of Father
1: Karras I really I really like that I've never I've never thought of it in that context before so I want to touch touch on another take
0: that I had from last week that I felt like really solidified watching this movie this week. Um, and that was the idea that the demon is being strongly related to women's sexuality, um, throughout really, because if you look at Reagan, like she is right at the cusp of puberty. Um, you have like everything related to like home, like homoeroticism, um, you know, like the lick me scene, the, the, the kind of things that Reagan says to the priests that are very, uh, sort of, uh, homoerotic um, there's a lot of just like uh, you know, quote unquote, non-traditional, you know, sexual orientations being sort of uh, cast in the light of being satanic or impure. And um, I think it's also notable that um, the women characters have to be rescued by the men, and you can see the the uh, priest is sort of having an authority over a woman's body in this in in those scenes. Um, and then, having to cast out the impurities. and then I think you can even take it to another level of he takes the impurities into himself. and um, in so doing ends up dying from it. yet he 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 saves the woman and, and, and Reagan here. Um, and we also have Chris McNeil sort of be relegated as a damsel who has to be rescued by these priests. Um, So I I just couldn't like I had these thoughts when I was reading the book, but they really solidified for me watching the movie that it seems like you could you could see this totally as a story about like uh, the patriarchy um, and how it sort of holds it up. Like it's like it's I I would say the movies in support of it, um, which is one of the reasons, again, why I feel like I'm a little bit conflicted about this movie.
2: Oh, I have a lot to say about that, uh, because this is
0: (laughs) this is an issue
2: that we discuss a lot in my literature Classes where I show students this film, try to get them to think critically about a horror movie Mm -hmm. that's out to just spook them, you know, Um, and I've actually published an article on this as well in a book. Uh, called studies in the horror film
0: the exorcist, which everybody should go out and read if you can find it uh, I'll try I'll, I'll link some of this stuff if you want to send me some links. I'll put them in the show notes so Yeah, stuff. was it was, w- it was
2: published by centipede press uh, maybe five or six years ago I, It's a great study of this film from many different angles. I mean even and other authors are in it like Thomas Ligotti Blatty uh, Has some things in there, so it's really cool. Uh, oh cool, but wow. in my article I talk about this as family ideology That is, it isn't just focused on gender politics in terms of like women or men, like toxic masculinity versus, you know, uh, femininity, female power or whatever it might be, but about how the whole family dynamic is problematic because it is patriarchal, as you said, Luke. I mean, think about this. They're fathers. They're priests. We call them fathers, right? And Mm -hmm, Chris McNeil mm -hmm. is going through a divorce or recently divorced, so the priest becomes a substitute father figure, quite literally stepping into this family and expunging out how the impure uh, divorcee life, that influence that it might have on the child. That's really what we're seeing here is a story about how a single motherhood uh, opens up the window to allow demonic possession and <laughs> yeah. how a father figure needs to be there, even if it isn't a father. Necessarily, or uh, a husband per se. Uh, you know, it's really interesting that Bert Jennings is kind of Chris McNeil's love interest in a way. It's intimated, right? And then he, he gets killed and expelled and all this other stuff because he's kind of a corrupt father figure. He's one of these, you know, uh, artistic drunkard. He has all sorts of.
1: <laughs> he has all sorts. He's probably problems. an atheist too. <laughs> but exactly. <laughs> The way that Reagan uh, confronts the mother about marrying him as well is, is a whole thing. Like just seeing the fact that, that he could become a father figure, like does she love him and all of that, you know, ties into that as well.
2: It's a real touching moment where, you know, Linda Blair seems very innocent and pure, but interested mm-hmm. and curious. She's in a preteen mm-hmm. kind of thing. And, uh, you know, a lot of those early scenes with her are just meant to establish that she's innocent and this she isn't just a teenage girl acting up she's an innocent victim of uh, demonic forces but really anytime a movie is asking you not to think about something it really wants to <laughs> wants to wants to go there and, and make you think about it on a subconscious level so uh, right. obviously uh, a kind of a, a quick easy analysis of this film would say she represents kind of the rebellious youth right Uh, And Mm -hmm. perhaps the uppity woman that uh, feminists were often uh, castigated as being in the 70s. Like, you know, women shouldn't make a spectacle out of herself. Well, that's all that (laughs) Reagan does is make a spectacle out of herself. Uh, A a good girl shouldn't talk like that. And that's all she does Mm -hmm. is talk like that. So, yeah, she represents the kind of upsurge resistance voice of feminism in the 70s. But at the same time, it's kind of put in its place by these priests, the whole patriarchal notion of it is kind of pushed aside and said, well, this is, you know, religion. This is God's will and other mm-hmm. things like that. And so it becomes a substitute for the basic bare boned gender
1: politics of this. You know, what is that? Yeah. What does that represent for her actually killing Dennings as well? You know what I mean? What does that represent in terms of like her putting down a patriarchal figure in some way?
0: Well, I think it's Pazuzu doing it, trying to trying to usurp it and trying to maybe take that position, like let Satan be your be your daddy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I wanted to get back on what you just said, uh, uh, Mike, uh, about how it how it sort of conflates uh, religion with with fatherhood and with the patriarchy, and how that is like such a that is such a important uh, topic. In America, right? Like, you see this everywhere, how the patriarchy, one of the reasons it's, it, it is so entrenched is it is almost given, like, a, a, a sort of a spiritual power. Like, that's the way it's supposed to be. Look at the Father. God is a man. You know what I mean? Like, it, it is all ingrained and, and really um, goes hand in hand uh, with the idea of of uh christianity and at least this perspective on christianity um so yeah i mean it, it's again one of the reasons why i bump up against this movie uh sort of politically yet i can still appreciate it it's also just fascinating that it is talking about all this all these subjects um even though on the surface it's not it's just a, a, a book uh, you know a, a movie about possession that's all exactly. it seems to be it, it's almost yeah.
1: a miracle for a movie with this much sort of like underlying uh analogies going on for for it to be as popular as it is you know this this was gonna this i think adjusted for inflation this is not only the the highest grossing horror film of all time but also the highest grossing film from warner brothers of all time um so like that's that i mean that was massively popular it was absolutely like a cultural phenomenon and then like yeah to i love i love just sneaking in subliminal messages like like having people think about it on Repeat viewings like it just adds so much to a film like this.
2: Yeah, you know in the version you've never seen and all the restored versions uh, There have been like CGI editions of Pazuzu's mm-hmm. face
0: flashing on the oven and things like yeah. that Yeah, like not those, a fan of those. I saw those in my version Yeah, <laughs> uh, They didn't look very good in well, my opinion.
2: Well, those were supposed to be what people in the 70s said were subliminal messages Like they saw them in the shadows and things like mm-hmm. that and then the freaking or you know I think with Blatty's urging uh, tried to make it literal, like, and, and to make yeah. it real, when really it wasn't real, it was just people saw it and interpreted it. I think some of those subliminal messages, though, the popularity of it, the you know, the, the way that we talk about it is this folklore surrounding the movie. Again, it serves to distract us from what is a, sub, uh, a subtle message, which are these mm-hmm. ideological value systems that are playing out on the screen like gender politics and things like that. So mm-hmm. those are subtle too. They're not necessarily subliminal, but they're under they're subtextual. Uh and right. and yeah. for right. for for our culture, for pop culture to kind of celebrate the subliminal is a distraction from the subtextual.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that, yeah. Well, and there's <laughs> uh, there is kind of some troubling linkage between that and sexuality too, right? Like especially when you look at some of the scandals surrounding the the you know the catholic church and and abuses of altar boys and and so forth um and then you have even at the end of the at the end of the film uh, reagan goes up to the priest and gives him a kiss on the cheek um to thank him for what he's done and i don't know there's i, I don't know what's trying to be said with that but then yeah you know obviously you know fuck me christ and, then, and using the the crucifix you know it's like They're directly making this link between sexuality and religion.
2: Well, it's a very... I think all Christian horror stories and films have a conservative impulse where they kind of destroy everything through sin and chaos and ugliness Mm -hmm. only to put it back together. And really, the endings of horror films are where it makes its political stance. So, like, if the social order is put back together and they right. live happily ever after, then it's probably a very conservative kind of politic. that's saying like, you know, trust religion, don't question it. Or, you know, if it's an open-ended thing, like maybe the movie The Thing, then, it's a, li- <laughs> then uh-huh. it's a little more, it's asking the audience to keep thinking about these issues and maybe not to settle on what the scripts that have been handed to us by our culture and society.
1: Which is why I think Friedkin and, and Blatty disagreed about the ending, right? I think I think both were in a different camp. I think you know the ambiguity is there um, in some ways. You know, I guess ultimately good wins out in this story. But- do you want Do you want to explain that? Because I didn't I didn't hear about their disagreement, dude. So did you find out like which what they wanted? Yeah so basically Blatty was looking for more of more closure similar to how there's a conversation at the end of the of the novel where there there's two priests who are talking and they're kind of remembering the sacrifices oh, and it's the, the, the whole Casablanca and the cop, I think right? right the Casablanca moment everything there's sort of the closure mm-hmm. that happens there Um, and like they're remembering the dead and all of this, whereas like, you know, the moment of remembrance we really get in the film is just the medallion being handed to the priest. And and that's sort of the only memory that we get. But apparently, you know, I didn't, this is the only scene that I didn't, I I watched the spider walk scene, but in your version, how did it end Luke? Because I believe there's like a conversation between two, like one of the priests at the end, right? Or, or yeah, the priest talks to the cop again, much
0: like the book and they walk away together talking about movies.
1: Okay. Well, there, I think there is in the
0: theatrical as well. Um, it's long. There was also a thing. moment where the priest walks over and he looks at the stairs um, so that felt like a remembrance moment for me where he and he, right. he chooses not to walk down them it felt like that was kind of like a that meant something he turns away and, and, and decides to yep. walk a different direction.
1: I, I think like Arnsen was saying with, with the uh, with Blatty over time Blatty kind of convinced Friedkin to add in some of this extra material and I think that that ending is extended in order to like sort of give even more Remembrance and give even more mm-hmm. of like a, a clue like a neat closure to it, which uh, To get back to the analogy of sort of like the more conservative status quo Situation uh, if it I think it that the nicer that the ending is that it's potential for it to be sort of seen as more the status quo Whereas if it leaves you completely devastated in a way or sort of like you don't know what what has happened and the status quo has been thrown out the window um, Not that's not to say that that's what happened here, but you know, we saw two people die um, in order to save this girl. Um, and I think just like having things be more implied, like, of course everybody will mourn their death and everything like that. But Blatty wanted to really show it and have audiences walk out saying like, okay, so mm-hmm. there was a reason for it instead of having it sort of be. Wow. more implied. I mean,
2: I think the ending is just as puzzling as the beginning in a way, because, uh, it feels unfinished to me and I'm never really sure. Like what is with that token that he hands her, uh, You know, at one point in the film, Kinderman finds the statue head that is a callback to the opening scene in Iraq but i don't know how that statue had got there i mean I, I there's there's so much of a disconnect i thought i thought, I thought that, that
0: was supposed to be a ceramic figure that reagan had made cuz he asks he later asks if she's the artist well, she and did, i think yeah. he's, you see some figurines sitting on the counter but i don't think that's super clear so i i, I that was just my guess cuz i i had that same question of like how the hell did that get there
1: that's what I, I i assumed that it was the the totem or whatever from from Iraq i didn't even i didn't even make the connection with the ceramics well
0: i mean that's the question it quest- looks like maybe she made a a a, a somewhat of a Pazuzu herself out of a ceramic figurine. That makes sense, yeah. That's possible.
2: I mean, it really doesn't tell us 100% or make it crystal clear how Pazuzu even no. got to this place. <laughs> right. Uh, and I I mean, later on in my life, I did a little research on the demon Pazuzu, not a lot, uh, but I saw <laughs> he he was a demon of the wind and was carried on the wind. So, uh, often in the movie you see that open window. Or yeah. Her bedroom. Oh. And at the end of the movie, it's closed up and boarded up. So uh, mm-hmm. maybe he just came in on the wind and
1: landed in her spirit. On the spirit. wind. Came in through the Ouija board. <laughs> <laughs> well. Luke yeah, Luke and I spoke about inciting incidents with, with the whole demon situation and I, I it's still kind of puzzling as to what specifically draws Pazuzu to this family. And Luke mm-hmm. mentioned kind of in jest like the idea that like, oh, the single mother who who uh you know has gone through a divorce and is like focusing on her career and all this stuff. But uh, mm-hmm. it, it there really is usually I would I would consider I would think that there would be a, an inciting incident maybe the Ouija board is sort of our, our gateway well though. we do we do also see a desecration takes place it's given a lot more weight in the book than, right. than we get here but we see oh, one
0: moment of, a, of like a statue I, that's been desecrated
1: I'm usually not a fan you know, you know there are there are horror movies that are sort of sort of uh, schlocky for a reason and they, they are but I, I'm usually bummed out when I ask somebody to watch a horror film and they're like oh I just laughed the whole time through um, but I, I laughed out loud when I saw that desecration like I it was very <laughs> funny to me um and like that's really you know it was a, I was scared for, for a lot of the movie I felt like the tension and everything but god that moment really just broke the tension for me a little bit
2: well yeah a lot of the uh religious iconography uh in the movie might be more disturbing for certain audiences that you know go to church every Sunday and so forth I, I sure. know you guys already talked about that but uh the film itself is is kind of constantly in drawing from uh christian relics and s- symbols and and all sorts of things that just kind of echo in a subtle way uh the spiritual realm uh as right. it's manifest in in uh material world you know and and catholicism is founded in something you know related to transubstantiation which is like the the spirit uh rises from above the body and and all this other stuff and it, I don't know, it's playing with, it's being very serious about the religious motifs, I guess is my point. Uh, mm-hmm. That for, it, it, well, I, you s- they know how campy this idea is. And so everything they're doing is to, is an attempt to kind of ground it in the occults and, and in religion so that people will take it
0: seriously, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. You, and you do have to take it seriously. Like you see Marin later when he gets vomit on his, what is that, The stole that he's wearing, the purple uh, cloth he he has to go and wash it in the sink and get it cleansed and then he comes back in ready to do battle again So they're they're sort of lent this weight of almost like their armor or weapons to be used against the devil
2: They are like mm-hmm. superheroes and that whole the power mm-hmm. of Christ compels you moment mm-hmm. and uh, You know the yeah. way the way I look at that scene though is is a uh, father's yelling at their daughters It's like all done. Th- <laughs> it's all done through voice. It's all done through yelling and words. And, you know, it's a battle of words when, when she's cursing and saying obscenities and, you know, uh, imitating the voice of, of, of Karis's mother. All that stuff. Everything Reagan's doing, more of it's done through her voice and the words that are profane than anything else. And this, this comes across in the novel as well, I think, pretty clearly. So, it's mm-hmm. really this battle between offensive language and pure language, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And <laughs> You know, on her body, there's a battle going on between purity and innocence versus corruption, sexuality, violation of the body, uh, wounds and penetration and all that stuff. And yeah. yeah, that invites that kind of female sexuality read that, that Luke referenced earlier. But the religious yeah. s- s- side of this is really like the power of words and like mm. the law of the father versus the power of the body or something like that. There's yeah. something weird going on with that.
0: Yeah, it's a war taking place,
1: and the battlefield is literally a woman's body, Mm -hmm. so... I think that is kind of <laughs> pertinent to today, right? <laughs> and I think about how, like, when the shirt's pulled up and the help me shows up on the her stomach and things like that, like, the the cry for help and, and like, mm-hmm. I don't know, just being sort of not not able to, to be in possession and in control of your own body as a female. You know what I mean? Well, and, and there's it, a little bit of that, like, oh, it's icky that stuff comes out of a woman's body, right? Kind of, mm-hmm. like,
0: played up to, turned up to 11 with all the just different projections and blood and everything and, and pea soup that, that is coming out of Reagan throughout. Yeah. Um, it seems like it's it's
1: referencing sort of real-world hang-ups people have. Right. There's a couple of things that you're making me think of right now. Um, one that I wanted to mention, we, I wanted to get back into the practical effects just to talk about sort of like the bed levitation and the, the moving of the, of the yeah. dresser and a lot of those things and how they look so real. Um, the, the room itself, the set, was was kind of built up on eight pneumatic wheels that would create like earthquake effects and things like that. And then they would also build in like the bed was built into the the, the weight, and the, the there was like a mechanism in the wall that allowed the the grips and a bunch of crew members to sort of like move it around and have it float and things like that. While so all the mechanism was like towards the back, mm-hmm. and just as you as you said earlier, in the like the. Ha- that sort of engineer ingenuity and engineering, like to see that in a film and to see sort of different, different industries come together to get things like that made. It's just, it just, it just adds so much to a film like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the other thing I wanted to do was just give shout outs to some of the actors because um, like you mentioned, we mentioned Marin and uh, Max von Sydow as Marin is like, he, he you know he's even wearing prosthetic makeup to make him look a little older if for 1970, oh, okay. like how old he was in 1973. Um, and but like he is just an absolute legend. Like the the gravitas that he brings to the role. We talked about how he is a superhero, and like when, when he is uh, sort of brought up in the, in the book. Last week we talked about how it's it's a shift. We're like, oh, we know that this is the guy to beat a demon. This is this is he's the holy man who's been a holy man for his whole life, um, and and if anybody can do it, he can. And I just I just thought like that's that's amazing casting. Like you know the seventh seal. He's he's been in in so many things that that make him this legend and he recently passed away so RIP to him RIP and uh Ellen Burstyn we have to talk about because I feel like what she's given to do, I think she does a lot with, especially like, you know, you think of like your squ- scream queens and you think of like how like women screaming and being feared, of like afraid of things in horror movies and things like that, like was a thing. But there's a lot more depth to her character than something like that. So I want to give credit to that role to that role and that performance there. You know, you can see her struggling with religion, struggling with like being a parent and going through divorce, focusing on career, that sort of thing. Um, I was I would have liked to have gotten the, just the line of her speaking about how like she was she was trying to go direct something because I thought that was really like like a, an, an actor taking a step to to be maybe even more than that and sort of pursue something that's entirely artistically their own is is a huge career step and things like that so I, I felt that that was something that I liked from the novel that didn't didn't make it into the movie
2: yeah I mean Ellen uh, Burstyn is amazing and the treatment of her character over the course of the story is just denigrates her you know she she's Mm -hmm. barely a walking corpse by the end there she's at the end of her rope both physically and she acts so well to to kind of sell this idea that the loss of her child is the loss of everything to her and she's desperate to save her child and all this other stuff right uh and it's a great kind of counterpoint to uh father Karras, and uh, I, i mean all these all the characters seem to be suffering for a lot for their sins, and Pazuzu is exploiting their various kind of weaknesses, right, not just because he gets off on evil, but, but maybe there's, it's intimated that people, and this comes across because of the Catholicism of it all, if you commit sin, you deserve the punishment. You have to kind of grapple with that, to, you know, you have, you have to earn the, the last rites that Karras uh, gets at the end, where he's kind of gets that last blessing You know, you've become the devil in the end, but you saved a child and you did something for somebody other than yourself. So you deserve uh, to go to heaven as a hero. And maybe uh, Chris McNeil earns something too, right? Like she accepts religion in her life. She's no longer a skeptic. So therefore she's earned Mm -hmm. kind of the right to have her child back.
0: Well, and, and maybe that's why he gives back the medallion. Like, the, if that represents religion to her, like, you keep it. You're going to need this going forward. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Oh, and I want to shout out Linda Blair, too. Just, we, we mentioned Absolutely. her before, but, like, yeah. so much of this movie goes through that performance. Oh, yeah. And to be so young and to have have it be so centered on, on what you're doing. I mean, I know she's not doing the voice, but she's still doing the physicality and... And everything else going, you know, I'm sure that there must be stuff about behind the scenes with, with Linda Blair, right?
1: Right, James? She, well, she was uh, one of the ones I was speaking about that was injured. There was sort of con- when she's flailing forward and backward on the bed mm-hmm. at that point when she's when the doctor. I know what in, scene you're talking um, about, too. Yeah. yeah, she she there was like a basically something that was molded to her back. She was strapped in with like li- something lace on the side, like like some laces basically going up. And then, you know, you couldn't see it on the front. And uh, they were in the back basically like pumping like a, some sort of pneumatic, like hinge or something like that just flailing her back and forth so it wasn't her doing that it was like she was being controlled and then the uh the lace started coming off the side and so she was like rather than it being in line with her back the entire time it started to separate and every time it would go back it would slam into her back over and over and in the scene her line is like stop 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 all this stuff and apparently the scene where she was actually getting hurt made the cut it's crazy to think of a child in a scenario like that um uh there's also another there's also Ellen Burstyn is sort of, she's smacked by the demon and she flies back and, and there's mm-hmm. like a stunt person who was pushing her and, and she she was like pushed very hard and like hit her head and like hurt her back and stuff. She ended up being okay, like went to a chiropractor, but that's what I mean, like very physical movie, like the, the, the directors, everybody's willing to go there um, and like risk the safety of the actors in some cases. And again, maybe those are stories that are played up to think about how extreme the story was and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But the, you know the actors themselves are telling these stories, so. You know, you got to yeah. take it from the source.
2: Well, their performances really deliver it in a human way and make it kind of again believable. You know, we mm-hmm. it, it encourages us to kind of forget our skeptical mind and take that hat off and just accept it for what it is because these people seem very real and. Uh, <laughs> and genuine and that the experience is genuine right
1: right and i don't think friedkin is trying to be like abusive to actors i think that he really felt that like that was what it took to get these actors into these headspaces spaces in a, in a similar way to like kubrick yeah. it, it probably also shows why we need uh, unions to pr- protect people right. from from
0: directors because you know th- this can lead to serious injury and or death uh you know right. as as we saw with like the twilight zone movie uh when directors uh are are start overstepping bounds um there has to be limited limits to these sort of things,
1: right? Especially where kids are kids are concerned, for sure.
2: I was thinking about
1: how we said that the medicine
2: was primitive in the '70s. Well, maybe movie making in the studios uh, was also <laughs> kind of primitive before there were certain laws in place and union protections and so. Forth. Right, but you know, mm, narratively just, speaking, uh, you know, Reagan is the one character who, I mean, in a way, she is innocent. She she hasn't committed any sin. Except maybe believing in the Ouija boards rather than reading a Bible, right, so right. like all the characters in the movie sell and make their their guilt and their feelings about uh, the afterlife and their worries and fears realistic, uh, whereas she's just kind of almost an
1: object, right, like an innocent mm-hmm. lamb. <laughs> it's been yep. taken over by that, Pazuzu. that we we talked in the book episode about the loss of innocence and and like what that represented there and it's just like uh, it, it is made all the more real because it's not somebody who deserves all of this right it's someone mm-hmm. who who unfortunately this was put upon and it's like in what what did this person do to you know incur all of this we're not really you know we're not fully yeah. sure because the well, inciting if, incident Well if they isn't implied that clear. that
0: she was in any way And welcomed this in, then I think it would complicate our our you know who we're rooting for. Exactly, she needs to just be purely innocent for this to work.
2: Well, and also for the Catholic Church to be absolved of their sin of being patriarchal, because at the (laughs) very (laughs) at the very end of the movie, when Linda Blair directly looks Dyer in the eyes and, and almost like forgives him. And I Mm -hmm. think she accepts and kisses his collar, if I remember right. Yep.
0: And like there's. Yeah, she looks at his collar particularly and then kisses him on the cheek. And Mm -hmm. that scene does so much
2: because it proves that Pazuzu's gone now, right? Uh, in a mm-hmm. way, because like, is yeah. li- her lips don't holy.
0: sizzle and boil off, right. <laughs> like they would. With I thought holy it also water. showed that maybe she remembers more than she was letting on. Like maybe she does remember that the priest saved her in some way. Yeah, but it's all it symbolic,
2: maybe. right? It's all symbolic. So mm-hmm. it's an acceptance mm-hmm. of the
1: symbolism of the church. Mm-hmm. You're making me think about one of my favorite scenes in both book and movie, and that's the the scene where the holy water is thrown on on her and it's and it's not holy water um and mm-hmm. the reaction and and the complication that comes from that I just think that that's that 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 tends to be my one of my favorite scenes because it's that moment of especially in the book um we're we're led to we're led to be skeptics a lot longer in the book we're we're allowed to sort of think until the very end that it's all it could all just be in her head um and then even here, we you know in the in the in the movie we're seeing the holy water thrown on her. That's not really holy water, and the reaction. So it's Pazuzu fucking with with Caris, uh, basically. Yeah, if, is I what guess, I get. Uh, yeah, yeah.
2: There's a lot of play too with just like I think reading that book in the '70s. It was a it was a bestseller before the movie came out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember seeing it on my uncle's shelf and, and wondering about what is this best-selling book. It's one of the things that, that kind of attracted me to the horror genre as a writer.
1: That original cover is horrifying as well. I was looking online at the original cover and I'm like, oh my God, it's so, imp- you don't really know what you're looking at. And it's so it, it kind of hurts you to look at it.
2: <laughs> yeah. And the experience of reading it for the first time, uh, imagine doing that without knowing anything about The Exorcist. Like right. nowadays, it's so saturated in pop culture. People know mm-hmm. The Exorcist through The Simpsons or something, you know, mm-hmm. every Halloween there, there's a way to, to know The Exorcist growing up in America today. That in 1970s, I mean, there, that didn't exist, right? So imagine the book being your first exposure to all this. I think right. turning the pages, it, w- it would be an experience of, my God, how far is this writer going to push the, the characterization of this child doing these
1: yeah.
0: things? Yeah. Yeah. And, and what what is your take on that? Like, where does The Exorcist sit as, as sort of... Uh one of the best or greatest horror films of all time, one of the scariest books ever written, as is claimed on the cover. Um, do you think it lives up to that, or is that all sort of just part of the marketing ploy? Or is it truly that in in, in American cinema? Is, is it the most terrifying <laughs> novel ever written? <laughs> uh, <laughs>
2: no, I think the book actually... I don't know. In my mind, the book has lesser power compared to the, the film. I feel like the book... Mm-hmm is manipulating obscenity and, and things that, that uh, almost in a way to just kind of push the boundaries uh, mm-hmm. under the aura of having a religious purpose or something. And it's also mm-hmm. kind of responding to the cultural interest in, uh, you know, Satan and things like that, possession of its time, right? As you guys all right. know, as most people know, Blatty was responding to a news report about a child being possessed and exercised. Uh, and so there's like this true crime element to the story, and true crime storytelling was actually you know a thing that came to um, came became very popular in the early '70s, right? So it's kind of a victim of its genre in that way. It, I mean, this everybody thinks of it as a horror story. But you could put it in all sorts of different boxes, right? You could call it a true crime story, or uh, an occult thriller, or even a domestic melodrama. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, really, it's a soap <laughs> opera about a single mother who can't control her child—that kind of thing, right? <laughs> um, right. I mean, when
1: you when you back it with the the filmmaking pre- pedigree as well, like you're 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 talking about elevating material to. One like we've we've spoken about, sort of like adding in these other allegories, and but um, you know, revolutionizing a genre is something that people talk about a lot with this movie, and and like you know, I don't I, I'm not super well versed on on you know horror novels before The Exorcist, but I'm assuming it wasn't quite as revolutionary to to storytelling in novels as you know The Exorcist is to horror today in in movies and and in cinema in general, and it's just I think I think approaching it as a serious filmmaker and, and like, you know, it being nominated, it was massive for, for horror in general, um, and exposing really the, the whole population to, to horror. Well, Mm
2: -hmm. okay. Let me speak on this just briefly. I, I, (laughs) it is a blockbuster for many cultural reasons beyond just it's, it's greatness as a movie. Like it's a very good movie. It's like, it it might as well be the godfather of horror. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, it's a classic (laughs) canonical, Excellent film for I mean, it's just so well done. It's to me. It's one of the it's the top movie. Okay, but but, you know, it popularized stories that were actually already being written in the subculture. So like in the Mm -hmm. late 60s, there were a lot of satanic thrillers. That weren't as popular as as Blatty's book. Like Blatty's book was part of a larger trend. I was trying to say this before with true crime, you know, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of kind of satanic stories, occult thrillers that were coming out. And Rosemary's Baby is another one that Mm -hmm. came out before The Exorcist uh, shortly and was also an example of this genre kind of becoming very popular.
1: And that's another another film, another horror film for sure. That's breaking conventions absolutely like that. That's like uh, setting a trend of of what you know future horror filmmakers would look to and like sort of cater their horror to to kind of like you said. Those are kind of the, some of the pinnacles that people look to and say like, oh, I want to make horror film now. And how can I make this a love letter to The Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby or something like that?
2: Yeah, nowadays it's all harkening back to these kind of iconic originals. Uh, But even though I'm saying or suggesting that Blatty and Friedkin are working in a genre that often is dismissed or not known about, uh, by the same token, they're just products of their culture, too. So, like, Mm -hmm. youth culture was questioning religion, (laughs) okay? They were questioning Mm -hmm. father figures having the answers to the problems in life when, like, you know, but people were coming home, their friends were coming home in body bags. How does God explain that, right? Uh, right. We're, we're, we've reached the moon, so we've broken into the heavens, and there's nothing there but empty space. How does God explain that? So, like, the youth culture of the 60s that was growing up in the 70s were very skeptical of authorities. And not just the president, like Nixon, but also religious kind of authorities. Uh, as represented in this film. And, and so there's a conservative move in this movie to kind of suggest that, you know, the power of Christ uh, can have the power, uh, that mm-hmm. over it's like fighting
0: back against all of that, right? Yeah. We also have uh, we also have like Black Sabbath becoming popular at the time, which I kept thinking of with the Black Mass and everything, right? Like you got music is starting to embrace darker themes and stuff, which probably scared the hell out of everybody's parents. Yeah, I mean, and it
2: continued all <laughs> the way out until the '80s, where like you know Judas Priest and Motley Crue and these bands were being you know banned for having satanic messages. Uh, Led Zeppelin, you play it backwards, you hear something, right? Yeah. So like, <laughs> this stuff is all part of a, where horror entered the popular culture and became a, a kind of popular alternative way of looking at the world and kind of addressing the problems of our world and of our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what horror has always done. It's kind of given an alternative like horror stories are given license to give, to explore the unknown, to, uh, Attempt to account for uh, narrative, to to use narratives and stories to explain things that are inexplicable by the powers that be. That's why it's a great genre, and to track how it's changed over the years is always an interesting thing to do because it's always responding to its society, but it's also a product Mm -hmm. of its time, too.
0: It sounds like you're saying that with the adaptation here, as we we talk about adaptations on this podcast, um, it seems to me that this book, while while a bestseller and important, was really um, it really solidified its place in pop culture as a story through its adaptation, um, which I think is fascinating, right in in the way that adaptation can work in genre and and not only just widening the audience but being reinterpreted by another artistic mind like the filmmaker um, and creating like a synthesis you talk about his style brought to Blatty's material created the synthesis for this kind of film um, I don't know it's just fascinating to think about like the way adaptations can can affect a story and make it have a lasting footprint and maybe it wouldn't have had otherwise
1: I also w- wonder and am fascinated by sort of what you're saying if I'm understanding correctly is like this idea that you know because they're a product of the time there are other they're, th- these are the ones that like sort of Found the, found the thing that would make it broadly appealing, found the thing that would allow them to be the, the sort of pinnacle of these stories um, in, the, in like sort of the general audience's mind. Like there are other, like it, maybe not, maybe it shouldn't necessarily be seen as the greatest um, because it wasn't, it's, it, it can be seen as the greatest, but it's not necessarily the first. It's, it's kind of uh, continuing a trend and then kind of hitting, striking while the iron's hot
2: yeah I mean, I uh, this is true of a lot of genre texts that there's always something happening. People are telling stories, but there's somebody does it perfectly in a way that encapsulates like the essence of the story. <laughs> and this happens in all genres. and and then classics are born, right? Texts that mm-hmm. bear repeated viewing or study over the years and coming back to you time and time again. So that's why there is a 40th version just out on Blu-ray a couple years ago, right? <laughs> it just keeps coming back because it's a it's a mythical story. It has the power of myth. You know, it's, it's got something archetypal uh, about it that speaks to man across different time periods.
0: Uh, it's so funny because this reminds me of just being in the Writing Popular Fiction program at Seton Hill. <laughs> <laughs> we would talk about these sorts of things and uh. trying to write pop popular fiction and how just it's almost impossible to predict it is impossible to predict like what's going to hit and what's going to become massive when you can look at it and say this is very much like these other six books that were written the same year but for some reason this is the one and you can try and figure out what it is you know people have talked about harry potter that way uh you know it it was like it wasn't particularly unique in any one way but it, it did enough unique things or it did enough Familiar things and it combined it in a certain way that just happened to hit everybody to where it became this um, You know super massive story and uh, it's just weird how that happens um, But it's something that is definitely a phenomenon that that has shaped sort of pop culture
2: Yeah, and I think some of I think the power of this text uh, Really harkens to something maybe uh, that James had brought up earlier about the different artistic visions between Blatty and uh friedkin and that somehow there's a tension here where the the movie doesn't take all of doesn't purport to give you all the answers and it leaves a lot of gaps for interpretation It kind of you know it even audaciously suggests things like in the spider walk sequence that are unbelievable or the help me uh like like what are we supposed to believe that reagan is a little like Small body inside her own body, and that's how her soul can (laughs) scratch that out. It's like it it enters the realm of symbolism, right? So, Uh something about the way that conflicts can't be, uh, can't come to terms, they can't be resolved except through Mm -hmm. symbols, I think is part of it. And I think that can also explain why a lot of great books, like Luke was saying, a lot of classics, like, you know, why is Game of Thrones sort of canon now? Why is it a classic of dark fantasy? And maybe there's some something about conflict in there that makes it so. Not necessarily, you know, doing something perfectly, but actually kind of embodying something problematic in a way that other people aren't doing. Like uh, hmm. I think sometimes conflict in the artist's mind produces greatness, not Mm -hmm. having all the answers, not being perfect, (laughs) you know, being Uh, being problematic.
0: something to think um so so we're we're i think we're getting towards the point where we're going to take our vote this is something we've been doing this year um at the end of episodes or at the end of projects we vote on whether or not the book or the film was better i do want to give an opportunity to go around and touch on any final scenes we want to talk about before we get to that i have one in particular i want to touch on and that is the moment where um reagan stand like kind of stands up in the bed and is sort of bound by the like aura of pazuzu who appears in statue form in the bedroom um and i feel like i've seen this scene elsewhere it felt like she was also sexualized in a way um it looked like her nightgown was sort of see-through um i don't know It, it it felt like they were trying to say something with this moment um that is seen and again i just see i see sort of uh, the intersection of of women's sexuality and being associated with with Satan, um, but I, I just thought it was a really you know interesting moment, and it had been so grounded in so many other moments, and yet here we have a, a statue appearing in the bedroom, right?
2: Well, that's a classic uh, kind of iconography of the film. I mean, it, to me, that mm-hmm. moment stands out as much as like what we see in the poster with the light beam yep. coming out of the window, as F- Father Marion approaches the household. I mean, that to me, that's like the Establishing good versus evil and all this other but um, in the moment you're talking about Luke I mean that's I, I always just read that straightforward as like that is Pazuzu kind of uh, suffering in hell and uh, being put back doesn't want to go back to hell but is being sent back to hell and that that's what okay. that's supposed to represent but it is a very ghost like almost it almost looks like it could have been shot in a cemetery right like like mm-hmm. an old-fashioned horror movie imagery we're getting there and it's really pretty neat Um, it's done with silhouettes and shadows Uh, I don't know how sexualized it is necessarily but uh, I thought that was pretty kind of a cool observation you made about the billowing dress and whatnot now she's up on her Mm -hmm. knees kind of crying out like maybe that's sexualizing but I always read it as more animalistic (laughs) Uh, you know Pazuzu is a very animal like uh, demon you know, mm. there 's a lot of grunting and puking and spitting and it's, it's, she mm-hmm. she renders this this once the spirit is gone, only the animal body is left. And I think this is a religious concept too, and the priests have a little chat about this uh in the hallway and the stairs where they 're you know talking about what is the demon trying to do here why is it do why does it do this to us and uh, mm-hmm. it, it comes back to the kind of being an animal versus being a civilized man uh, or woman, and obviously there's an argument being made here that religion civilizes you.
0: Mm. Okay. Any any additional scenes you guys want
1: to talk about before we get to the vote? The last scene I love to talk about is the the silhouetted sort of getting out of the taxi, looking up to the window moment. Yeah. Um, because it is so iconic, and and I think that it is it's so effective as a poster. Uh, Luke and I were, t- were speaking in the book episode about how it was included in the book. I don't know if you remember this off the top of your head, but do you know if that was an original Blatty idea or if it was an original Friedkin idea? Because um, from the documentary I was watching it, seemed like friedkin uh was speaking a lot about how um they sort of conceived the 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 shot and the idea behind it um so do you know if it was like added back in and like because we read a a, a, like a newer edition where Blatty had made some changes yeah it looked like he maybe had added some stuff
2: well i mean i think it's Purely Friedkin's visuals that really make it remarkable to begin with, right? And so, like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of cross-cutting that happens there as, as Marin's in the taxi cab approaching the house. It cuts, You know, you see the eyes come out over the screen.
1: When the, yeah, when the door's open and he's in full shadow and then steps through the threshold and is revealed or everything like that. Yeah, well, and, Re- and Reagan is reacting to him arriving. Like she opens her eyes in
0: bed and like knows he's there. You can tell. Or right. Pazuzu is. Um but yeah, and then also the light is coming out of the window. It's almost brighter than the street lamp he's standing under, which which I think is kind of saying something about like the, the it's projection like a holy, of
1: power. Holy holy battle that's going to go down for sure. Like there's something biblical about what's about to happen.
0: Yeah, it's a biblical
2: setup of uh, of the conflict between good and evil and demon and priest. But the lighting of that scene is so interestingly done and the cross-cutting, all of it, that, uh, I mean, it's really, it, like, it looks like a spotlight is beaming out of that
1: window. Oh, like, totally. And yeah. now, showing up to the ring, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like a boxing <laughs> moment or something. It's, it's completely unnatural, which, which is part of what I think makes it so, you know, so memorable.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. And, and Marin doesn't freak out. He just kind of looks up like, you know, the, here I am. Let's yeah, go. Right. Let's yeah. do this thing. No, it
0: seems like when he reads the letter that is given to him in the woods, it seems like he knows at that moment, okay, oh, yeah. I'm going to do battle with, with the demon again.
2: Yeah, exactly. The one scene that I we didn't get to talk about that I would throw out there that I hope your listeners never forget would be the dream sequence that Damien has. Oh, uh, where he mm. sees his mother and then the subway mm. and there's the falling amulet and then it hits the ground and there's a screen that whole dream sequence is amazing I, I mean to me that's like up there with the shower scene from Psycho. it's really it's, psycho. well
1: we we also get the flash frame of Pazuzu right that that like that one frame moment is in mm-hmm. there as well and Yeah, I mean, that's iconic as well. That's that that and that's got to be one of the most iconic moments because it's it's the first moment I think of like full surreal, uh, otherworldly instances, and it's a dream. So it's like, are we to take it literally? Uh, You know, is it is it sort of inferring? Are we are we now learning sort of what the threat is and how how things will play out for the rest of the movie? Yeah, I agree. I love that scene.
2: Well, the other thing about it Mm -hmm. that I throw out there is that it's really, it's his nightmare. And it's the only psychological insight we get throughout the whole movie that's presented to us to interpret like we were psychologists,
1: right? Like we don't ever see Chris
2: McNeil have a nightmare. We don't see Reagan experience the transformation into the demon. We just see his nightmare and it speaks for itself. So that makes him like the main character of the movie for me because we're invited to read his thoughts uh, moving forward, and uh, it also establishes, like you said, James, uh, like a surrealist way of approaching this, that from this point forward, the whole film is a nightmare, and all the mm-hmm. all the cinematics are done, you know, almost like Eisenstein, it's intellectual editing, it's not uh, mm-hmm. realism, uh, even though that's mm-hmm. what Freakin' is known for, so uh, it's just right. amazing... This movie's
0: amazing, guys.
2: I, it really deserves three or four episodes.
0: Well, as as much fun as we're having talking about it, uh, we we've got to wrap this thing up. So I want to get to our votes. I want to go around. We're gonna we're gonna start, and we'll let you be the third and final vote. Um, what what's the better version of this? Is it the book? Is it the movie? Um, James, do you want to start off?
1: Uh, yeah, it's. I, I like to answer right away. So in keeping with <laughs> in keeping with my pattern, it's it's the movie. Um, you know, we've outlined a lot of reasons why um but i think i think what it ultimately comes down to for me is when when someone takes material and they interpret it and then elevate it it's it's it, that's usually what i look for in an adaptation it's not a straight ad- adaptation for beat for beat but it really captured exactly the essence i think sort of of what uh of what blotty was going for but then Friedkin. um Wanted to you know add the ambiguity add add moments of questioning and, and like allow for a lot of analysis to happen here So mm-hmm. it's it's the the movie for sure. It really is a very faithful adaptation in many ways
0: yet It is it is almost a, uh, a lens if you will um, that you're viewing it through uh, in the movie that uh, gives it gives it sort of different dimensions Um, Even though it is the same story, it feels like to me. Um, So as much as I want to give the credit to the book, I tend to be the book guy in the podcast. Um, I'm going to give it to the movie because it's the coming together. It's the synthesis of these two things that I think makes something that's truly sort of iconic and lasting in the movie. So, yeah, movie for me as well.
2: Oh, I don't get to break a tie? (laughs) No, no, unfortunately not. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Totally the movie, but really it's the story. I think the story, I got to give Blatty the credit for the story, Uh, you know, the structure of this is so well done, the iconography, the archetypal uh, elements of this text, it's just so well done. The problem is that the prose of the book and the style of the book is forgettable whereas the cinematics Hmm. of this movie are unforgettable. And that's why I'm voting for the movie, not the book, even though i got to give Blatty credit and say horror writing and books are almost always superior to the film, (laughs) which usually literalizes the book, treats it as, like, literal uh, in their adaptation. Uh, In this case, I think The Exorcist kind of accepts the unbelievable nature of itself, but presents it in a realistic fashion and somehow the conflict between Blatty's conservative religion and Friedkin's kind of hip 60s aesthetic where he's kind of punking it but taking it seriously at the same time <laughs> makes the film so good. And I'm, I'm, I'm betting that Blatty's presence in the making of the movie made all the difference. So no shame on William Peter Blatty. More power to him. He's a great guy. Thank you for the book, William Peter Blatty. But the movie is superior. (laughs) Hmm.
0: (laughs) Well said, well said. Well, thank you for coming on again, Mike. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, You joined us for The Thing in the Past. If anybody wants to go check out that episode, or actually two episodes we did on The Thing with you. Um, Also, we recently uh, were guests in one of your classes on adaptation, and that video is available on our YouTube channel. That's YouTube. Uh, dot com slash ink to film and you will be able to watch that if you're curious about it we got interviewed about uh, what it's been like to run a podcast on adaptations by an
1: adaptation class yeah
2: that was a great experience I loved having you both in class and that conversation with the students was amazing
1: (laughs) it was a lot of fun (laughs) Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we do want to give you a moment if you wanted to sort of like send people to your social medias and any mm. anything that you have that's out that you'd like to put, pu- push towards, uh, people towards.
2: Well, sure. Thanks, James. I, <laughs> um, my website is gorlitz.com and that's kind of my uh, hub for social media. And you can also find me at michaelarnson.com. Uh, but I'm most active on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Uh, But, you know, I don't know how many people actually start typing those things in when they hear things like that over (laughs) podcasts. I would send your listeners actually to my books and say, if you're curious about what kind of horror fiction I write, pick up a book called Proverbs for Monsters, because the lead story in that book is called Exorcist Land, and it's... A story about a theme park that's based on The Exorcist. <laughs> that's awesome. That's so cool. Um, so uh, check that out. And uh, also, I wanted to give a plug to another spinoff that's more legit than mine. And that is the actual Exorcist TV series that had two oh, yeah? two seasons a couple of years ago. I don't know if a third one has come out or if it's in production. It's actually quite good. And if you appreciated that whole scene where Marin is driving up in the taxi to confront demon Pazuzu through that spotlight in the front yard moment. It uses that brilliantly in the first season and that's all I'm going to say about it cuz I don't want to spoil anything, but the first season of the TV show is actually a an interesting adaptation of this kind of movie franchise, let us say. Ooh, cool. Wow. That's
0: another potential bonus uh, subject for us. I like that. I like to hear that.
2: And you guys are amazing. Great insights into the film. I learned some new things. I'm gonna rob some of your ideas when I teach this again <laughs> in the year. The before. feeling is
1: mutual. We're we're gonna say take everything you said and and act as if it's ours to our friends and family and <laughs> like tell everybody look, look look how smart we are. So, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure. Uh, thank you
2: guys and long live the exorcist. The power of Christ compels me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> So if you enjoyed that episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. It's a great way to get in touch with us and
1: also get the word out. Um, so we'd love to see them. And also connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at InkToFilm. And make sure to join the Council of Inklings because we post polls, we post articles that we find about upcoming adaptations. And it's just a great way to stay engaged and like talk about adaptation and, and sort of films or, or books that are coming out. And if you'd like to support
0: this podcast, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. We have bonus episodes on there. Uh, we just put out a new one recently. It's early access to some adaptation news, horror news, and also us talking about ghost stories, um, some things that actually happened to us. Um, trying to look back on them for me in particular. Something that happened to me as a child I talk about
1: on there. So if that sounds interesting to you, check it out. Patreon.com slash ink to film. And thank you once again to our fabulous guest, Mike Arnzen. We really appreciated you coming back on and, and telling us all about horror and the history <laughs> behind it.
0: Yeah, anytime I can talk to my former mentor from Seton Hill is a great time. Uh, he he just knows so much. Um, I love it. Uh, yeah, so thank you again to Mike. Uh, definitely check out his books. Check out his uh, social media. Follow him on Twitter. All of that. Um, and until next time.
1: Thanks for listening.